You're listening to Reframe Your Life. This is episode 112. I'm Sandy Reynolds, and I'm here with my co-host, Patty Hall. I'm really excited about our guest today. Patty's going to introduce her. I just finished reading her latest book, and I couldn't put it down. But before we go there, Patty, welcome. Thank you for introducing me to this author. And why don't you introduce her to our listeners? Another exciting episode. Thank you. Today we're welcoming Kate Armstrong, author of The Stone Frigate, which uh, landed in bookstores everywhere in 2019. Kate is, and this is exciting, a finalist for the Rakuten Kobo Emerging Writer Prize. Congratulations for making the shortlist. The prize could be announced any day, and uh, for those that don't know it, that's a Canadian-only prize, and uh, we're excited about that because Canlit is so important for us to co-promote. Kate was an ordinary young woman eager to leave an abusive childhood behind her when she became the first uh, in the first class of female cadets admitted to RMC, Royal Military College, which for those who don't know is located in Kingston, Ontario. We'll probably call it RMC most of this interview. RMC was and I dare say is the ultimate boys club. There were 32 female students in that first class to some 800 males. And uh, Kate was drawing on her own fierce spirit to push back against the treatment and inflexible bad habits, that's my choice of language, for a domineering and patriarchal organization, and on top of that, a military organization. Later in life, feeling unfulfilled by her post-military career, Kate realized that finding her true path forward meant she had to go back to the beginning. Going back to the beginning meant exploring her story, and we're thankful that she did. Kate went on to work as a military officer after RMC, lives in Nelson, BC, and now, I dare say, is a full-time writer, and we're going to hear all about her book, her why, and what she's got planned for us. Kate, we're so happy that you're here with us. Thank you. I can't believe how excited I am to be on on the show with you today. This is really a fantastic opportunity because it gives me a chance to speak about the most important thing I was writing about, which was how do we go through these kind of situations as women and then come out the other side and find ourselves and find a way to, to um, reframe our life. (laughs) Great. And you know, that's a great name. Somebody should have a podcast with that name. Don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) Your book was so challenging in some ways. I'm really looking forward to unpacking it with you. So Kate, one of my questions after I read the book was why you chose the title, The Stone Frigate. Now I know that's a building and I get the the actual literal name of the title, but was there another meaning? Does it signify something? Does it represent something to you? Yes, uh, thank you for asking that. Beyond the fact that the Stone Frigate is the building that my squadron lived in, and it's the sort of beginning of the military college started there. I kind of love the double entendre of it that stone boats don't float. And that is in that is in the book as well as a sort of counter to our, to our squadron cheer. But for me, it's like as a woman setting off on my career and um, being put in this, this stone boat. So I do love that. Uh, I love that too. I wondered when I I thought there's got to be more to this title. So you wrote a book that deals with patriarchy and the way that you were treated as the first female cadet at Royal Military College of Canada. 
for our listeners who haven't read the book, what year was it when you started, when you were the first female? The summer of 1980. Um, so from 1980 to 1984, there were 32 women uh, in Royal Military College in the first class of women. Wow. So you were, you were 18, were you, when you, when you started? Yes, I had just turned 18 in March. So I'm thinking when I was 18, I wasn't quite ready to fly across the country. And I do know, though, that we probably shared the idealism that most 18-year-olds have. What were you expecting the reception would be like for you when you got to the school? I came from a family that didn't talk a lot about politics. And so I would say that I was politically naive. Uh, when I left home and so it came out of the Trudeau era for equality for women and and there was all kinds of things happening in, in that sphere and when I got there I didn't even really know that I just thought oh it's the law so it's the law that we're allowed to be here so we'll be welcome <laughs> <laughs> she says laughing and that wasn't the the situation at all not at all and also being naive, I, I couldn't figure out that there would be people there who actually would purposefully try to get us to quit. It took me a little bit of time to figure that out as well. Mm. Yeah, I remember the spot in your book where you say, you know, it, it isn't just that they, that, you know, they're guys. It isn't just that they don't know how to behave better. It was literally that they wanted to send you packing. And there were so many reasons to want to leave, weren't there, Kate? And there's that, that's quite a big thing early in your book about, you know, maybe I should just go home. This is so hard. It would have been that hard anyway, because the training was so rigorous, but uh, that was amplified by your treatment by the male cadets, not just cadets, by all of the male attendees, fourth yes. years in particular. And then I, I started to understand the gravity of what I had, the situation I had put myself in because there were only 32 of us and it was literally a test to see if the women could be at military college and yes. some women did leave for different reasons and I came to understand that it didn't matter what reason that you had for leaving for example one woman wanted to be a nurse and there was no nursing at RMC and so she went on and studied nursing at a different university starting the next year but it became uh, just a tally women can cut it women can't cut it and so right. I was like, well, I can do this stuff. I might not love it, but I can do it. And I just felt compelled to stay and do it. Yeah, and there's a personal piece behind that. And I think it comes up for me around, I remember the chin-up scene where um, most of the gals as the instructor that's there with you, I think it was a fourth year actually, seeing if you could make the minimum standard for chin-ups. Of course, you're working towards the minimum standard of getting through the obstacle course too, but there's that chin-up moment. And of course, as women, we all you know, belabor the fact that we don't have the upper body strength we might like. It's our physiology. It's not our biomechanics. It's not whether we're strong or not, because clearly you were an athlete and as strong as you could possibly be. But I remember that chin-up moment where you can't do or we're trying to do the minimum of three and there was that line of oh all you gals have the same problem and then you know some guy comes up and does a bunch of chin-ups and you get that i remember that moment where you feel the warm breath and you hear the voice in your ear saying he can do that because he's not a girl so the constant reminding you that you are at the disadvantage and they want you to stay there was uh, part of what 
must have been brutal for you to stay and it wasn't just happening to you obviously the staying though you had something to prove right you had not just your gender to prove out you had something to prove not just to the canadian government that was preaching equality but you didn't want to go back home for a lot of reasons and i remember the conversation with your parents on the phone where you're saying maybe i'll just quit and your dad says, well, you know, you know, stick it out. And your mom says, yeah, maybe you just should. Maybe you should come back here and we'll help you do something else. And something's triggered in you at that moment. Can you talk us through the, the idea of having two homes, you know, whether you should stay at RMC or you should go back home and your parents' reaction? That's a great scene that you picked out there for a characterization of um, with the dynamics in my family system. I've often thought of that moment and I included it in my book, sort of with this in mind, if my mom would have said, no, you have to stay, I swear I would have quit. (laughs) (laughs) Even though all the other things I just said that, you know, that I truly did think that way as well, but there was that special layer with my relationship with my mom that um, I've looked back to that moment so many times. And if she really did want me to quit, then that would have been her, that would have been her approach that she could have gotten me to quit with. Yeah, I applaud the writing there, right? Because in the old, in the writing parlance, that's a show don't tell of epic significance because mm-hmm. the juxtaposition too of how your parents reacted similarly but differently. And if your dad had said, listen, honey, I know it's hard, go ahead and come home, you would have felt okay about going home. But the oppositional defiance to your mom is every single woman on this call can relate to that even in a basic sense. And of course, it was a much deeper dysfunction for you and your relationships. And that Mm -hmm. dysfunction is, uh, for me, is part of what drew you to RMC, part of what gave you the ability to stay and hang in, because dysfunction, sexualization, gender disparity was something you were used to, wasn't it? Yes, and it's so interesting, again, that you're, I love this, I love speaking with women about reframing life and about like looking at my book, because often people focus so much on the military aspect of it, but I meant it to be such a broader arc of the human condition, especially for what we experience as women. And the most interesting aspect of that question for me is that I wrote the stone frigate several times, actually, like as a, as writing the the rewriting and the, the getting it down and honing what the story was. And I really got to know my editor through that process and it wasn't until toward the very, very end before I submitted it to my, to, for, for a publisher that she said, you know, Kate, you really, I think you really need to include your family. Otherwise your story won't make sense for why you stayed. And so actually that piece, like the, the thread of my family system that was introduced into the book after it had been worked and polished and quite far along the road of being, of being written. And it literally wasn't until after I, uh, published, did my launching, and then started to hear questions and get feedback that I could see the significance of the parallels, even myself, um, but of my family, what happened in my family and what happened at RMC. Mm. Your writing about the abuse set in your family, it, it took my breath away. I actually had to stop reading and just like calm down because you you're so vivid in in your description i'm talking specifically about being sexually abused and 
I'm an abuse survivor as well from a childhood sexual abuse survivor. And you know, when someone's writing that they've had that experience, it's, there's just something, there's some truth in it that you, you were able to communicate it so powerfully and I'm curious as a writer, what it was like for you to do that writing, to put yourself back onto the floor of that bathroom and experience that again as a writer and in telling your story. Oh, wow. Powerful question. It's very difficult to I had a difficult time. I I was 27 years old before I actually openly admitted that that had happened to me. There's a lot of shame associated with being sexually abused and devastatingly for me, that shame landed on me. And I think that that's not uncommon. Um, And so my life journey has been informed basically by my recovery from my childhood sexual abuse. And so by the time I was writing The Stone Frigate, I had done a lot of my work already and I was able to to share it because I had shared it and I had come to that place where I had actually told someone what had really happened for me. The day that I did that was well into counseling when my counselor made me realize that I hadn't actually ever told her what had really happened to me. And this was years before I wrote the book, but the day that I did that, I remember leaving my counseling session and I was living in Vancouver and I went down and I sat by the ocean in my car and I bawled for like two hours because I thought, oh my gosh, that happened to me because Mm -hmm. I made that a story about me, but I didn't feel it. And so I, I had had that release and I think that that helped me so much when it came to writing about my family just in general and also to be um to be so honest do you know like to be able to say because truly my true driver of writing that is the identification and thank you sandy for for sharing that that happened to you as well is the identification because it happens to so many of us and it's not surprising to me and i know patty's um mentioned this already that you would um bring this into the situation at the Royal Military College of Canada. Like this would, this was who you were. You were a woman who, a young woman who had already stuffed down some pretty horrendous abuse and was living with a lot of shame around that. And, and even um, having come to your mother with that story and having her not hear your truth and dismiss it and blame you. I, I just think that there was something in that as well that um, helped you, or maybe not help is the right word. There's something in that situation and having that background that set you up to be a good cadet, a good woman cadet and take that the abuse. So, that is so true um, because I was still trying to win with my you know, like the setup over and over and over to win with my mom to like be seen and to be good enough. And in this weird way, it compelled me into overachieving. And um, at military college, if, if you were like really strong woman and in, in that class, I think in particular, um, it was more, much more of a threat 
right? And so it kind of upped the ante, but I didn't realize that that was the dynamic that I was in. And, you know, like the stuff that happened in my childhood with my brother was so young, like five to nine years old. And then he fled the country literally when, when I was nine years old. And when I was around 12, um, my mom and my dynamic, I won't go into it too much, but I, I think I talk about that in here about how I turned to my mom and I hope it's okay to swear on the show, but <laughs> I kind of raised my fist and said, do that again. And I'll fucking kill you. Right. And that mm-hmm. piece is that piece was in me that that's what I brought from my childhood. And so when I got to military college, I had that, I had that in me of like, I'm going to show you and do that again. I'll fucking kill you. And I can say that openly because I know Mm -hmm. there are lots of guys that experience that energetic intensity from me. Um, But yeah. And, and, and the weirdness of the parallel of the childhood sexual dysfunction and then the RMC sexual dysfunction, like they're telling us who we can date. We're like, in the exact zone of when everybody's going kind of crazy of like, I'm away from home now. I'm an adult. I can finally, you know, choose what I want to do, be the relationships I want to be. And the shame, like I was sexually shamed at RMC and sexually shamed in my own family. And so it's a miracle, like coming out of all of that, that I'm being able to kind of recover any of that sense of, um, you know, sexual health like sexual um ambivalence or whatever right like i don't know how to say Mm -hmm. it properly yeah i mean cue cue the applause i mean i you just said more than i think i can i can even hold back emotions Uh, i can't even hold back emotions of what you just said i mean we talk so much about writing being healing but in fact you had done so much healing kate to be able to get to the point of writing and isn't it fascinating that your editor suggests to you that you bring the family stuff in when it hadn't occurred to you that you had to. I mean, you still had the ability to write the story of what happened at Royal Military College without fulsomely relating what went on in your childhood family. You still were able to compartmentalize that. It it speaks to how deeply embedded our abuse is in our personhood for the rest of our lives yes and the the thread of that which is kind of baffling to me is so that was in 2014 in the epilogue when I went back to RMC and I found out that the guys had a meeting and they thought that I was um, most likely had the strongest leadership potential in my group of recruits in the Stone Frigate and so they set out to make it more difficult for me and so by the time I graduated that's that's a form of gaslighting right like telling Mm -hmm, me who i am and then being wrong about who i am and by the time i graduated i believed them so then i went into the military like i'm a big screw up right and then so that's how that's how you kind of process things and make decisions it's like oh i'm a screw up anyways or and it and it wasn't really true but in lots of cases that's how i behaved then i go to corporate world and i end up working on a trade floor electricity trading and then doing long-term renewable energy deals and all this stuff, but it's a trade floor and it's predominantly male dominated. I had the same experience there, you know, and just the, the ongoing of this, I left that job in 2013, like after 20 years with um, BC Hydro and PowerX, it was the fall of 2014 when I had that lunch with that guy from fourth year 
when he told me that they, they did on purpose, they had a meeting. That was news to me of my entire yeah. life experience. I just thought I couldn't get it right. I sat at the lunch and I cried, you know, and, um, and he, like, he's an amazing person. And I don't think he really fully appreciates the, the gift that he gave me in that, do you know, like that, and for me to be able to share that with other women, it's like, hey, you know, newsflash, they actually do it on purpose. Like, it's not right. just a benevolent thing. Was that kind of a reframe for you, though, with like understanding that you actually are a strong leader and you were a threat? It has been a huge reframe for me. And this might sound hilarious when I say this. And truly, you know, I, I, I used to tell people what I was up to, like things I was doing and everything, because I always felt less than, right? And I think that in that moment, I had that it was the tipping point to realize it's like, oh my gosh, people think I'm bragging because I was so accomplished and I did so much and I worked so hard and yet still I was energetically treated like a loser and I couldn't figure it out. And for example, I took a sabbatical from my job for 13 months and went offshore sailing. Like I sailed to the South Pacific and back, right? I whitewater kayaked the rivers of the Pacific Northwest and I was um, making like really good money, had a really good job. I had this like on paper, what looked like a really great life, but inside I still felt like that old messaging was still there from my childhood and from, from RMC. And then that's why I came to the place of that. It's culturally unnecessary to treat women as equals. Right. Then I mentioned that in the book because I got that place of like, Oh, you know, people talk about prejudice, like simple prejudice will give way in the face of new information, right? It's like, oh, I didn't really understand that. Now I see. And then they change their view. But chronic prejudice is like unbending and entrenched. So in the face of new information, it just means they have to take a better angle or or a new way of um, reaffirming that, for example, if there were some women there that were the best, then it's like, oh, we need to punish them. Right. Right. Not like, oh, wow, some women are the best. This is so great. We let women in because, um, look, they can do what we can do. It's like, no, that makes me look bad. I got beaten by a girl. Right. Right. Yep. Sorry. I might've gone, I think I might've gone off on a huge tangent there, but. (laughs) That's okay. Do you think, do you think the situation has gotten any better for women at Royal Military College? Can you give us the the short version of what happened after your class and what the situation is like there now? Um, yes, I, it's such a complex question and I'm kind of glad you asked it that way because I truly believe that I, I'm still loyal to RMC, which will sound mm-hmm. ironic, and I have a lot of friends that are still at the college. I, I'm still proud I went there. I'm still proud I graduated because RMC is difficult. It's hard sure. to get in. It's really hard to graduate. It's truly a life accomplishment um, to be in in that the class, you know, with the group of people. And we've stayed friends all the way through our lives. And because of my book, the Commandant, um, Brigadier General Sebastian Bouchard, he read my book when it first came out. And his wife is a graduate of military college. They actually met at military college. And she had been the cadet wing commander of CMR. So he came from a place of knowing that 
this is what it's like. And they were there 10 years after I graduated. And he read my book and he started handing it out to senior officers saying, you know, this is enough. Like, this is real. This stuff is real. It's not just back then. It's, it's real. And he's making a real effort toward making things different. But what I can say is that people coming in, they come in from our culture, right? And so it depends on how you frame it in the culture. Um, am I being too long-winded? Because I have one other thing I want to say about it. No, please go, go ahead. Please, okay. please go ahead. So I have a friend who's a professor at RMC, and he said most recently, coming out of the high school system, the, the new recruits and the first years, some of them are not, they don't have the proper preparation from, for math, right? They, they're coming out of the high school system. And so they have engineer, engineering professors, like aerospace engineering, math and physics professors, teaching the first years the language, which is the language of engineering, teaching them the math language that they need so that they can get through their engineering degree, right? And so that's the thing that they're putting the effort into. And for me, the metaphor is the same. It's like people are coming in with the attitudes of our culture because it, like, it, frankly, it starts from the time we're toddlers, of we're culturalized, that it's, that it's culturally unnecessary to treat women as equals. And for me, as a leadership institution, I would love it if RMC would do the same thing about sexism, mm -hmm. to do the reframe, to have the leaders of Canada going out to be like, to be, ha have that process um, reframed for them to take forward, just like they're learning the math. Does that make I sense? I love that. Yes, it's a great parallel. Like, I, I think that's a really great way of expressing it. And it would be, it would be wonderful if they would put the same, like, put the same weight on equality and the attitudes towards women and probably other you know, systemic issues as well as they do math skills. Well, and this is it as well, like that um, it takes so few people to influence the others because I would say that the vast majority, I had such a great experience. I went back to, the, to RMC in the fall to speak to the class of 2020 and the cadets are brilliant. They're amazing. It was like such a positive experience for me. I was so delighted. Um, to have had that experience, but I know that still within the class of 2020, there are guys that are going to be totally against women at the college and kind of making it so that it's more difficult for people who want to live in their values to stand in. It's kind of like right. having to stand up to the bully and you have to kind of choose. It's so hard to get through anyways. It's like, is that my fight? Is that not my fight? Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that whole thing about whose fight is it leads me to one of the questions we had, which was the the decision to write the book and i'd love for you to tell us a story about the epiphany where i should write this came to you but and and what the thrust was was it the i should help people i need to get this out people should know what was the the push when the epiphany came to you that you should write about this um i would love to say that it was a highfalutin fully formed <laughs> <laughs> epiphany but mostly i think truly at the beginning when I had that thought was, oh, wow, we were just a part of history. And sometimes somewhere, someone might want to know what was it really like for the first class of women. And I would mm. have to say that I would characterize myself 
as the woman in our class that got into the most trouble and ah, okay. that I, I took it to the highest, mm-hmm. um, to the highest strata of leadership too. Like I was literally standing in front of the commandant, like thinking, this is it. I'm going to be kicked out of the house. Since I've been in grade two, the kids in my class have said, go tell the teacher. I don't know why I'm wired that way, but I've always been that person. And so I had a lot of practice of telling the teacher, I guess. And so I thought, <laughs> you know what, I could, I could write this. So it wasn't really, <laughs> but I as, I, as I, after I had my experience in the corporate world and everything too, it changed because I have friends that are partners in law firms, ear doctors running a department, um, composer, um, chefs, and they all were all having the same experience. We're all having the same experience. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is global. Yeah. Would you read a portion of your book for us? I would be delighted. I picked a little piece that has a potpourri of, um, military college life, just a couple pages, and it's right toward the end of the second week of recruit term, and we're about to head into academics. So I, I picked that part because it has a little bit of a mix of everything. Great. Chapter seven, academics. We went straight to the old gym for our textbooks, and when we got back, I marched down the hall at the specified quick time pace, executed a crisp left turn, and halted in front of Mr. Kendall's door. I knocked three times as instructed. Enter. I opened the door, took one step forward into his room, and snapped to attention. This was my first time in a non-recruit room. The decorative throw pillows and duvet cover, plants, and a collage of photo frames around his desk surprised me. The air carried a faint trace of incense. A khaki-colored poster with a burgundy silhouette headshot of a long-haired guy in a beret with a communist star was the only wall art. Mr. Kendall was seated at his desk, flipping through a pile of papers. Excuse me, Mr. Kendall, 14390 Recruit Armstrong, KA1 Squadron A Flight 3 Section Reporting, I said to his back. Yes, Miss Armstrong, he said, turning halfway in his chair toward me. Mr. Kendall, there's been some kind of mistake. I've been given first-year engineering books, but my degree program is commerce. Everyone here studies engineering in first year, Miss Armstrong. You switched to non-engineering degree program curricula in second year, he said. I was dumbstruck. I had come prepared for a different answer, feeling resolute that it was a simple mistake, but now my head swam with anxiety. So you're the first, he said, turning back to shuffle the papers on his desk into a stack. I beg your pardon, Mr. Kendall? First, first woman in history to be assigned a cadet college number at RMC? He looked up at me. College numbers are assigned alphabetically, Armstrong. That makes you first. Very well, Mr. Kendall, I said uncertainly, our eyes locked. You say that now, he replied with a grin. Anything else? My throat clenched into a burning lump. Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. No, Mr. Kendall, I replied. Permission to carry on? Carry on, Miss Armstrong. I returned to our room parched and sweating. I had taken commerce prerequisites in high school, law, economics, statistics. I had only physics 12, chemistry 11, no biology, and poor math preparation. My high school didn't even offer calculus. I went straight for the sink. The tap flowed glorious cold water. I gulped at the stream. 
you know the guys piss in the sinks? Meg said as she shelved her last textbook. I stood straight up and water splashed down my sweaty work dress shirt. Dalt told me. They're furthest from the men's washroom. He said they just piss in their sink. Everyone does it. We don't though, right? I looked at her. Meg burst out laughing. God, no. Good, I said, bending over the sink again. Thank you for that. I love that we segued beautifully into space about, you know, this tiny little, you describe it as the room that you and Meg lived in being basically a walk-in closet with a sink. And it makes me wonder now if you've become a discerner of space. I mean, when, are you spacious? Are you a space lover? I mean, let's talk about your writing space for a second, because uh, I think Sandy did some research and found out that you work in a tree house, or at least you feel like you're in a tree house in your office. Tell us more about that. I um, I live on an acreage outside of Nelson, BC now. And when we bought the property, there was a tree house that has a drawbridge and it's on the cover um, of my Facebook page, like the cover photo, but, and I also use it on my website. And the, the man that owned the building, I mean, the owned the property before us, he had the um, cartoon boards underneath. And one of the boards said, no girls allowed. <laughs> and so, I just love being in that space and you can drop the drawbridge and I go, I go out there and I read and I write and I work. Uh, I have an office in a house too. So I'm, I don't, um, that's not my only space where I work, but um, yeah, we have, we have a literal tree house. You'll have to come and stay in it. We I'd love, love to. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at your Facebook page now and I see that the sign on the front says, be ye friend or be ye foe, no girls allowed. And I can't read what's below that, but. I'm sure it, it says, has something to do with. It says rules one through 10, no falling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so charming. So charming. What are you working on now? And I have a little, the sneak peek is I remember asking you the first time we met, I remember saying to you, so I thought you left a f- little bit on the cutting room floor of the stone frigate, meaning I bet there's more to this that you decided not to pack the full punch in the stone frigate and knowing that you are pursuing an MFA now and that you are a full-time writer I dared to ask you on our first phone call what are you working on now so I'd love to have you share with the listeners and with Sandy and I about where do you go after memoir one when you know there's more to say what are you working on now I'm working on another memoir that is effectively a sequel memoir to the stone frigate and it totally picks up the thread of my family, what happened in my family. And then literally from graduation at military college, how my childhood abuse affected my life and how did I recover and heal from, from that abuse. And the frame, so I used um, the Petri dish of Royal Military College to tell the story of my experience with sexism And the frame that I'm using for my next memoir that I'm working on right now is a drive across Canada um, from literally the ocean in Vancouver and following my family system back through time to the 1770s when my first ancestors crashed on a beach off Cabot Beach in PEI and had to swim ashore and lost everything. And then, so the migration of my family since 1770 from PEI to Vancouver, uh, I, I visit all the towns and look for the graves of all my ancestors. Amazing. So it's, it's, been, it's been super powerful to work on it. 
um, because I did a counseling degree and in my counseling degree, that was part of my own healing journey. I chose to do this counseling degree that had a lot of process work in it. And the first year project was a genogram to trace your family system back four generations. And genograms are about the, polit um, not political, sorry, the psychological interplay of the relationships. It's more than just the family tree. Mm -hmm. So my memoir, and this is funny, I just did my residency, which was morphed onto online because of the COVID restrictions, but I literally just finished it yesterday. And um, so I did lots of work with it in my small group cohort with my mentor. And I just came up with the title and I changed my working title because I had a different title before. I was calling it Between Oceans because I drive from Vancouver to PEI. But the drive is I picked up 13 stones at the ocean oh. in Vancouver. I wrote down all my character defects or mistaken beliefs that I had that I feel came to me through my family system. I drove them across the country and I threw them into the ocean at PEI at the beach of Cabot Beach. And then I chose 13 stones from Cabot Beach, wrote down what my affirmations are of who I am, and then drove them home. Oh. So it's this interplay. It's an interplay from my life from 1985 going forward. 2011 which is when the drive happened and then my family's life from 1985 back to 1770 so i'm i'm interested um i'm weaving together what came out of my system that was not mine but i took on and then what was mine and then how can i reframe my life like literally that's what my book is about reframing my life so that's why wow thinking. you mentioned the 13 stones does that figure in the new title oh yes <laughs> that's the name that's the sorry because i was i was avoiding using that because my first book's called the stone frigate ah then, of course right and then i realized like oh my gosh but wait a minute 13 stones it has stones in it and it's a sequel great i love it yeah me too oh. powerful it's, for, you're, it's hot off the press. You're the first people that I've told it. Wow. Uh, told We're going to boast about that. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned you're doing your MFA. So I'm curious, what prompted you to pursue that? I think because my marks at RMC were so terrible. <laughs> and my whole life, I just felt like that is not a reflection of what I can do academically. And then I went and did the counseling degree and I literally had straight A's the whole way through the program and I, I thought yeah that's you know that's more representative of what I can achieve um, but also because I didn't have any training as a writer like I wrote the stone frigate and I learned to write writing it and then I had a lot of help with the editing and everything so I was learning the whole time through but there's that part of me where I'm so passionate now about writing I'm a writer I want to be a writer so it made sense to me that um, well, and plus I can use my second, like the 13 stones will be the thesis of my master's. Mm. So I'm going to write the book anyhow. And to get all of that support, it just feels, it just feels right. And the timing feels right for me. That's great. 
Well, I guess the next thing to ask is how can people find out more about you? Uh, we usually ask you to go on and on about your favorite memoir here and a few other random questions in which we'd love for you to answer. And then if you could tell us about your favorite memoir and then what about things that you recommend maybe you've got a favorite book that's not memoir and then can you wrap up for us by talking to us about how folks can find out more about you and uh keep up with you okay favorite memoir oh my gosh you caught me flat-footed on that you can you can say mine Okay, I'm going to segue in. I'm going to segue yours in it, but I haven't <laughs> read it yet, so that would feel like a cheat to me, but I am going to I'm going to segue segue that into it. Um my favorite memoir that I've read recently and like I say you really caught me flat-footed on that question um is A Woman in Berlin by Anonymous. And oh. it's a story, yeah, I I was introduced to it um through a professor from RMC actually and he teaches it in his class. And actually, this is a funny little segue because he bumped Wuthering Heights to include the Stone Frigate in his um, English 101. Nice. I know. Isn't yes. it so great? It's such a treat. And he was talking about the psychology of war. And um, a woman in Berlin was published coming out of World War II in Berlin when the Russian soldiers came in and what happened there, like the rape culture that happens in war it's super powerful and the author was um in publishing and she was a journalist and a writer and all the way through she died i believe in early 2000s but she insisted on it being that her her it was anonymous because she just didn't want to have um her name attached to it and there was quite a brouhaha about people trying to find out who she was as well and um and so it's still being published as anonymous and I didn't bother pursuing because I wanted to respect that I didn't you know go looking to see if someone had found out what her name was um so that's my most recent memoir that I read that I'm really passionate about it's brilliant it's amazing um and did you say where people can find me yeah where can people find out more about you and follow you and uh, get excited about your next book I think the center point of where people can find me and follow me and find out more about me is my webpage, www.katearmstrong.ca. And in the, my website, I have a journal page where I've done little essays about things that have happened all the way along, including, I don't know if you've looked in there, but there's, um, at first, it was sort of counterintuitive to me to change everyone's name in the book and then post photos of them, (laughs) right? And so I thought, oh, I can't use any photos. And then as time was going on and my book was being well-received and I kind of checked in with some of my classmates after they had read it and they said that it was, that they were okay with it. Um, And I told anyone who, you know, if you don't like that, your photos there, just let me know and you can take it down. So I did a little, a couple exposés on like the obstacle course, photos from the obstacle course, photos from recruit term and first year and and so it's kind of fun. I've been having a really good time um, developing my web page and I work on it. Every time something fun happens, I put it on there. Now I'll have, I'll have being on the podcast. Yeah. I'll write up about that. And from there are all the links, like from my web page, all the links to my social great. media. It's great. I did look at those pictures and love them. They were great. So 
Thank you so much for being on this episode. We could talk to you for a while longer and people that are listening don't know we already started about half an hour into the conversation. So it's been a, it's been a good conversation or as uh, my, my family would say, the crack's been good. <laughs> oh, you're Irish. Yes. That's right. <laughs> you know what? So I just want to say for the listeners um, that we're on Zoom, and it's been the most amazing experience to sit on Zoom and look at two women that look exactly like my sisters. And Aww. we have, we have like, we all have like the same hair and the same uh, mannerisms and everything. And it just feels so comfortable and familiar right from the very start. Aww. It was such a delight to be on the program with you. Thank you for thinking of me and inviting me. Aww. Thank you. What a treat. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Kate Armstrong. It was such a pleasure for Patty and I to interview her and to learn more, not only about our Canadian history with women in the military, but also about her life and her story as well. If you're interested in knowing more about memoir writing, please check out pattymhall.com. Patty has a lot of resources there that can help you get started and she's a coach as well if you want someone to help you get into your story so that you can share it with people. I am at sandyreynolds.com and I'm working on my first book and I'm excited to bring you more about that in my weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that at my website and get my free download disappoint more people. If you're a chronic people pleaser, this will give you some good tools to help you start overcoming people pleasing in your life. And please help us out by sharing this episode with a friend or leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. And we're trying to bring you the very best quality guests that we can find and certainly know we hit the mark with today's guest. Thank you.